and welcome to the latest episode of Climbing Consulting. In today's conversation, I speak to senior consulting leader and business advisor Mark Campbell. Over the course of his career, Mark has ticked pretty much every consulting box, from becoming a partner at KPMG to leading the boutique consulting from Hedra through their growth journey and navigating the complex world of M&A to achieve a successful sale for the firm to Mooshell. If that wasn't enough, he's also held senior leadership roles at industry stalwarts Hitachi Consulting and RGP, and since 2019 has moved into a portfolio career, working with a range of consulting firms as a board advisor and board member. I first met Mark when we were working together on a project for one of his clients, and it was clear from our time together there that he had so much experience to share. But it was when a listener of the podcast, the CEO of a rapidly growing boutique consulting firm, recommended him that I knew it was time to reach out and see if we could make this interview happen. With so much experience and his unique perspective, having held leadership roles across a range of different sized firms, he seemed like the ideal guest for the show. And I was so pleased he said yes. In this conversation, we discuss a range of topics that have been critical to Mark's career success and talk about how you can apply them to your own career or your own consulting firm to help you achieve your goals. We talk about why Mark decided to leave his role as a partner at the global player KPMG to join what was at the time the leadership team of a very small boutique firm and the importance that happiness played in his decision making in joining Hedra why culture is critical to any consultancy success and what you need to think about to ensure that the values on the wall of your office match the behaviors that your team live day to day and the importance of brand when working for a boutique consultancy and how being small can actually be an advantage when competing against the big players whether you are just starting out maybe you've recently made partner or you could be leading your own firm or business unit Mark's advice is going to help you accelerate what you're doing and avoid many of the pitfalls that you can only see with hindsight. So with the intro done, all that's left to say is sit back, relax, enjoy my conversation with Mark Campbell. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here, Nick. Thanks for the time. Not at all. Well, obviously, you know, we've worked together and known each other for the best part of two years. Today's the first time we've met each other, which is a slightly strange feeling, you know, but that is COVID, I guess. And so I'm really pleased to be catching up and hearing more about the journey that we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. But I guess for those people who maybe don't know you so well, Mark, could you just start us off with a bit of an overview of your background and, and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Yeah, delighted uh, to be seeing you in person as well, Nick. So I started my career in local government. And to show my age, I started for an organization called GLC, which quite a lot of the listeners will not even know about. But GLC was a predecessor to the Greater London Authority. So a local authority in London that was actually abolished in 1986. Anyway, after I left local government, I worked for PA Consulting for a couple of years. I then spent 13 years at KPMG Consulting. I was uh, a partner there for five of those years. Then joined uh, a small niche public sector consultancy called Hedra. I was chief executive of Hedra and helped sell that business. Went with the sale to Michelle, who bought Hedra. And then in 2010, I worked for Hitachi Consulting for four years. I was a SVP there and head of the consulting uh, services business. And then my last sort of corporate job, if you can put it that way, was with an American headquartered business called RGP. And I ran the European part of that business, which had operations in 10 Western European countries. 
And that took me to, by great luck on my part, just before the pandemic, when I got out of the corporate life and, uh, uh, and moved to the kind of portfolio career I've got now. Fantastic. Well, I think a great overview, Mark, and a lot for us to dive into. And and I think just from our conversations yeah, over the time we've got to know each other, I think particularly some of the lessons you've learned from that journey. And maybe starting with, and you mentioned the sort of hedra part, and something that's always interested me and we'll talk about a bit more is actually where you and where some of your colleagues from that business have gone. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some of the names that have been on the podcast before from there. But I think just to start us off and set the scene, because I want to talk about the heat, the Hedra part, is how did that opportunity come about? Because you know you were in KPMG, Hedra was quite a different consultancy, and I just love to understand where that came from. Because I'm sure there's listeners who are in those sort of big four partner roles who think I'd love to be, you know, I'd love to go and be a partner, a CEO in a smaller boutique firm, but that's not the sort of role you just find on LinkedIn. So how, how did that all come about? Yeah, good question, Nick. So. There were three or four different things came together at the same time, uh, as often happens, a bit of good luck and serendipity. So first of all, the part of the KPMG business I was in was public sector, and Hydra was a public sector-focused business. So there's a first read across from that perspective, I guess. The second important point is that KPMG had, in 2002, been bought by Atos. KPMG, along with EY and with PwC, were selling their consulting businesses. So KPMG had been bought by Atos. And I was with Atos for about 12 months. And to be honest, I wasn't very happy there. In fact, I didn't realize I wasn't very happy. It was uh, it was my best career advisor, my wife, who told me I wasn't very happy. And she said, uh, when are you going to do something about it? Which is great career advice, of course. And then I was very fortunate that the Hedra team had decided they want the founders, that is, of the business, wanted to crystallize the value of their ownership and wanted to set an exit journey for Hedra. They had brought in an executive chairman, Linton Barker, who uh, prior to joining Hedra had been at PwC. And uh, Linton, through a headhunter, uh, uh, approached me and, and a bunch of other people, but uh, approached me and we got talking and talking a bit more. And one thing led to another. I, the push factors from Atos and the pull factors from Hydra were great. And I was pretty keen to try something that I hadn't tried before, which was being in a small business. Uh, and that certainly intrigued me. And being in a business that was going to grow on, go on a growth journey, a growth journey to a an exit, which did actually happen in 2008. So as I say, a number of things coming together from different perspectives. Just because you mentioned two things in there, and I, I think for anyone listening, particularly now COVID has sort of, we're moving out of the pandemic into the endemic and we're hearing about the great resignation, people finding new roles. I, maybe I'll go in, in the order that they happened. Almost, how did your wife tell you and how did you find out you were unhappy? Because I think that's a really interesting piece, particularly if you're a partner, you're successful, you know, all of the trappings, etc. It's sometimes very oft easy to think that's just stress. How did your wife almost identify that in you? And, and I'm thinking particularly for anyone listening who, who may be having those same feelings, what were you feeling at the time that you only realized was that unhappiness when your wife pointed it out? Yeah, good question. Well, I don't say this with any great pride, but you know this in consulting, Nick, and a lot of your listeners will. When you get to the Friday evening, you're absolutely pooped. You sit on the sofa, maybe with a glass of wine, watching a box set, which we didn't have at the time in 2003, but watching, you know, a bit of a rubbish TV. And what was gradually happening was that glass or two of wine became three or four glasses of wine. I don't mean uh, anything, you know, too untoward, but it wasn't healthy. 
and the slobbing around in front of the TV on a Friday was happening later and later into the evening and kind of was just me kind of vegging out and, 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 and being a bit brain dead and being a bit, a bit grim about it. And my wife actually told me that I just wasn't a pleasant person to be with a good deal of the time. And not just on Friday nights, <laughs> other than the Fridays as well. So, uh, and, you know, she just said, so when are you going to do something about your happiness? Which is a really interesting question because sometimes in a consultancy environment when you're driving towards targets and goals and ambitions and the next promotion and everything else, not many of us stop to think about how we're happy. And I think it would be healthy if a few more of us did perhaps. And certainly 20 years ago, that wasn't something that was commonly talked about in the workplace environment perhaps. So uh, that's why I mean it was great business advice from her or, or business coaching, I guess you might call it. So yeah, I, I, I guess I wasn't a great person to be with and she wanted to be with a, a nicer version of Mark, which is a fairly uh, reasonable kind of ambition, I think. No, I, I love that. And, and you're quite right. I think I'm sure, you know, I, I've been guilty of it. And I think a lot of our listeners, like you say, it's too easy to veg out on a Friday night on front of the sofa, especially over lockdown, where you literally couldn't do anything else. And I think that point around focusing on happiness is really powerful. It's a long time ago. So stop me if it's too far back. But how did you reconcile that? Because like you say, 20 years ago, the world was very different. You know, now there's a big focus on mental health, happiness, etc. But I imagine 20 years ago, it wasn't seen in that way. Was it just something you said, you know, I'm putting my family first and I, I'm going to make this change because it's been highlighted? Did you have to go on a journey? So how, how did you reconcile that? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was a long time ago, so I'm not sure I remember all the detail, Nick, but I do remember a few features of it. So firstly, I think I had set my career at a certain point on becoming a partner in KPMG. I joined there in 89 and, you know, went through the mill and, you know, I was very... Uh, glad to have been appointed a partner and in many respects felt as many people do that was uh, you know the pinnacle of my career so now I've arrived I'm, I'm, I'm the big man sort of thing so I'd achieved in my head in my uh, head I'd achieved an ambition then which was great and secondly I also felt a sense of loyalty you know the company had done really well for me had really served me well and trained me well and supported me well and was paying me let's face it very well also so I felt a certain sense of loyalty and I think having achieved that ambition and feeling that strong sense of loyalty, I just was staying with it without actually taking a step back and thinking, what are some of the other possibilities here? And it was that external jolt that, that my wife gave me, which kind of made me realize, oh, maybe there's something more to than just achieving an ambition, which was actually achieved four or five years before uh, and staying loyal. And then when I got the call about something fairly different, albeit in the same consultancy, in the same uh, industry, that then piqued my interest. And as happens in recruitment, you know, one thing leads to another and you, you get to understand more and more about the opportunity, get more and more intrigued. So I'm not sure that's everything, but that's certainly the things I can remember most clearly. I think it's so true. And, and like you say that you, you've made it and that feeling of you've got to stay there and actually not sort of checking. And I think that's to your point around sort of 20 years was a long time ago. I think now people are much more cognizant of that. The answer just may be, like you said, it's sort of that perfect moment of coming together but bringing us back to the Hedra part, obviously, going from a KPMG global big firm, and, and you can tell me, actually, I suspect 20 years ago, the sort of startup mentality wasn't quite what it is today. You know, it's not now it's cool and sexy to join small businesses. I don't know how it was back then. But how did you decide it was the right opportunity for you? And, and maybe to bring this up to date for people you work with now or advise, sort of if they're making that jump from the the big to the small, how do they know it's right? Particularly if you spent so long in a big firm, it can feel quite daunting, you know, going from X thousand or 10, 20,000 to 
200. Whether it was the Hedra piece or or now, how did you get comfortable? Or how do you tell people to sort of do their due diligence to decide if it's right? Great question. The first thing I would say is, in my view, no amount of due diligence you do will give you a perfect answer. No amount of due diligence can reveal whether it's definitely right or definitely wrong. So there is an element of leap of faith about it. Okay, so that's the, the first thing I would say from my experience. However, the due diligence is important. But just stick with the leap of faith thing for a second. I guess I came to appreciate that I had an element of self-assuredness. I'd achieved a fair bit in my career at that point 20 years ago. You know, I was reasonably successful at what I, I was doing, which allowed me to say, you know what, what's the worst thing that can happen? I move, it doesn't work out, I'm not happy again. The business isn't right, the business doesn't succeed. You know, I have still got some skills in the marketplace that will allow me to find something else. And that is a comfort blanket. It was to me anyway. I appreciate not everyone is in the same situation, but that was to me. But back yourself, I think, would be uh, would be something I would say to people. On the due diligence specifically, I certainly spent quite a bit of time getting to know the people I'll be working with as best I could. And in any traditional management consultancy, I would say that is the most important thing you should do as part of due diligence understand the people you're going to be working with. I don't know how long we are into this, Nick, but I'm going to make my first sporting illusion. It may not be the last. So people that know me realize that I cling to this a lot. And Sir Alex Ferguson, who's no hero of mine, but he's a very great football manager. You know, he said, when you're choosing a football club, choose the chairman, not the club. Uh, Choose who you're going to work for, not the club. And that was really at the center of my due diligence. So who are you going to be working with? Who are you going to be sweating with, you know, deep into into the night? Who's going to be helping to guide you, support you, be with you? And I got reasonably comfortable that the people I would be around are good people who I liked, enjoyed working with, I could learn from. So there were other aspects of the due diligence as well, but I guess that was probably the most important. So to your question, you can't get all the answers you want. Back yourself and look around and find out who you're working with. I think a really great point, Mark, and, and I'm a big fan of sporting analogies and metaphors. Regular listeners will know I say this multiple times. They're about the only ones I can manage and not too well at that. So I'm completely with you. And I think there's an interesting point in there that actually doing your background research on the firm, you're going to work for and speaking to the people. So I think we often think of the recruitment process as a one-way street. And I I infer from what you were saying that actually it's a two-way thing, finding out about those people as well. Was that sort of right and how you approached it? Absolutely was. And and rolling that forward uh, as much as I've been able to in recruitment I've been involved in where I'm the buyer, as it were. I've tried to make sure that we create the opportunity for the people that are potentially going to join us uh, have the chance to meet the people I'll be working with as, as far as you possibly can. And, and that's, uh, that's just to see whether they can work together, they can pick up the vibes, the sense of what it feels like to work around here, what the culture's like, what the values are like, and to see whether, again, you know, late into the evening or the, 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 they enjoy being with the people they're going to be spending, you know, 10, 12, 15 hours a day with from time to time. And that seems to be like a pretty important aspect of choosing where you want to spend the next part of your career. Uh, I think you're spot on. And it's it comes back to, we're going to touch on later around culture and, and how you built that culture at Hedra and what you, you know, what you do with the firms you advise now. But I, I think it's so important. And actually, something that that piece you were talking about ties into, and it's something I, I really wanted to find out about with the Hedra stories. You talked about the founders were looking to realize value and exit. And at, at a certain point, and I'll let you fill in the blanks here, you became the CEO and you had f- the founders working underneath you. And I just 
I'm really interested to find out about that. You might tell me it, it was really uneventful, but that feels quite unusual. Again, in the world I know of consulting, you become a partner, someone becomes a managing partner, then at some point everyone retires. And actually, that dynamic where you have the founders as almost your subordinates. Talk about, I guess, how did that come about and how did you make it work? Because it sounds like something that if it works well and it did, could be successful, but could also be fraught with challenges and tensions. Yeah. It, I, I, so first thing I would say, in my experience, it is unusual. Not unique, but very unusual. So it's definitely worth reflecting on, I think, Nick. Second thing I would say is the biggest credit in all of that has to go to the founders themselves. They were firstly brave enough to recognize that whilst they're taking the business to a great place, they weren't necessarily the people to lead it to the next great place. So to their credit, they were open to the idea of other people coming in and leading their business, their baby, which they had worked long and hard to grow. Again, to their credit, not only were they happy to bring people in and hand over the reins, to use a bit of shorthand, but a couple of them at least were also happy to stay working within the business subordinate. And one thing they did, which I, in my experience, this is the only example I can think of where this has happened. They didn't want any special privileges at all. They were dealt with entirely the same way as the, uh, the other directors in the business. That was the particular grade they were working at. And anyone coming fresh into the company who didn't know who the founders were and who the new recruits were wouldn't have seen any difference. And, you know, I, I absolutely take my hat off to them. That was a, a fantastic role that they played and, and, and to their eternal credit. Now, the truth is it also helped that the business was growing and it was starting to move in the direction they'd wanted it to. That's not to say we didn't have some bumps along the road, but of course it helps when the judgment they had to bring people in is supported in business results. But sometimes even with those business results, some founders, a lot of founders, do find it difficult to let go. So the huge credit has to go to the founders on that, I think. In terms of the order of those things, so you mentioned that they had that humility and awareness to say, actually, we, we need someone else to take this forwards. In terms of your journey and, and that step up to CEO, did they come to you? Was this a a process you all went through together? Did you go to them and suggest, well, maybe I could do this? How, how did that first series of conversations start, if you like? So I, I never had a conversation with the founders about me being CEO. So just a little bit of chronology. So I joined the business as a as a director, uh, along with a few other people at the time. We, those, uh, those of us who joined the business, became the management team. Linton Barker, who I referred to earlier, was our executive chairman. We then grew to a point where we realized we needed, we thought we needed a COO and I was invited to be the COO. Linton uh, had that discussion with me and then we decided pretty quickly after that we needed a CEO and again Linton as our executive chairman and the rest of uh, my colleagues on the management team thought it would be a good idea if, if I was that and I never spoke to the founders about that. They completely delegated that responsibility for running the business to Linton and the management team. So I think they were reasonably happy with it. <laughs> None of them said otherwise. But again, that's to their credit. They had properly delegated that authority. And what you've said there may make this question or the answer to this question very short, because the follow on is actually how then once that was decided, did you make it work in terms of did you have to have any conversations with the founders or maybe it was with Linton about rules of engagement or was it quite simply because of the size you were, it was an easier conversation around corporate structure of, you know, okay, as the CEO, you are directors, you report to me, et cetera, et cetera. Was it that clear or, or was there sort of a conversation around how we make this work once the decision was made? No, it's very clear. They were 
in terms of the day-to-day operation of the business, they were directors in the same way anyone else was a director. You know, they were in the appraisal process, they were reviewed and given gradings and bonuses and whatever else you have. And, and you know, they were asked to do whatever the business required them to do in the same way that others did. They were also, of course, shareholders and they vet as shareholders and the shareholder team had a relationship with the board, which I sat on. But uh, in terms of day-to-day running of the business, there was no special working arrangements that we felt we had to we had to make. It it was, you know, asking these questions makes me reflect on actually it was remarkable remarkable how easy it was. And uh, I say again because it is worth saying again, it's to their credit that that happened. And to your point, because it sounds like that story worked in the Hedra journey, just worked seamlessly. For those businesses you've worked with since and you advise now, how do you help founders see where their limitations are? Because we all you know, we all have limitations, whether it's 10, 50, 100, however many people. A bit to you, you know, the story about how you found the role in the first place. Is there any sort of rules of thumb or guides you give to people to help them sort of sense check, am I the right person for that next level of the journey? Or should I bring in you know, someone like yourself in that role? I don't think there's one or even two straightforward answers to that. Nick, because obviously every founder is different, their objectives, their priorities, their their outlook on life is different. So I think to the extent I have and have had those discussions, what I try to understand is what is it that founders want? And some founders want the business to be successful, whoever's running it. Others might want the business to be successful and then to absolutely be a part of that and see their name over the door and, and and be forever associated with it. Some founders want to be intimately involved in it in, in a day-to-day sense. And all of those are legitimate. All of those are legitimate. But I think the important point is to be really clear about what it is they really want as their objectives and then explore the implications of that because you can't have everything. Well, maybe you can sometimes have everything, but you can't necessarily want to bring in external talent, reward the external talent really well, grow the business, sell it off for a load of money, keep the uh, owners uh, very happy and have them forever associated with the brand name. Uh, It's very difficult, if not impossible, to do all of those. So if the founders have a particular objective, it's important to understand what that is and explore with them openly and honestly the implications of that, which might lead them to a different objective. Who knows? I think it's a really good answer. And and to your point, you, you probably can't have it all, I, I'm sure. But it's a really key point, like you say. It's the old time cost quality, I guess, from the consulting, isn't it? You, you can have something, but not everything. But I, I, I take your point as keeping aware and continuing to ask that because I suspect, as with all of us in life, those goals and motivations can change at different levels, different life stages, etc. But staying cognizant to it's a really important thing. Yeah, great point, Nick, because of course, you might have that conversation today with uh, the the founders of a business. And in 12 months, two years, three years, that may well change uh, because of all kinds of reasons. So I think it is important to continue to check in on that and make sure that the working assumptions are still valid. And if they're not, then regroup and and reappraise what that means. I want to turn, Mark, to something, and I alluded to it at the start around culture. And I know it's something through the time we've known each other, we've talked a lot about something you're very passionate about. And I think using that Hedra story, because just for my listeners' benefit, and correct me if my facts here are wrong, you joined as, I think, number employee number 37 in 2003. So small organization, you know, you probably knew everyone by name, you, you could see everyone in the office. By about, I think, 2008, you were over 200 people, which is 
you don't know everyone, much bigger office, you might not see everyone week in, week out. And I'd love to know the sort of cultural journey and how important that, maybe to start with, how much that played a part in the success of Hedra. Because again, to our point around making that jump 20 years ago, I think culture is something that really has come of age, if you like, in the last 10 years. So yeah, how did you approach that as a leadership team? And what were those key inflection points over that sort of that eight or five years of the journey? But you'd guide me to the most important ones. Sure. So yeah, you're, you're, to, to your question, your facts are broadly right. That's it. That's the kind of numbers we started on. I was 37 and we grew to about, I think we were 220 when we sold the business in terms of number of people. How important was culture in that? I would say it was the single most important thing. Not the only thing, far from it, but the single most important thing. And there's a couple of aspects to that, I think. Firstly, when you get to a certain scale, you're not, as you quite rightly say, you're not seeing everyone on a day-to-day basis. So what is the glue that binds that group together? What is the set of values, the culture, the frame of reference that ensures everyone is operating in an appropriate way, whatever you call appropriate? And I think culture in a consultancy business is that. It's not methodologies and, and what you deliver for clients. You know, It's not the, the reports that you, you chuck out. And it's not down to any individual people either because people come and go. Uh, culture is, if you get it right, can and should last way beyond the coming and going of individuals. So I think the culture is really important, particularly in a fast-growing business, because you can't see everyone on a day-to-day basis, but everyone does see other people on a day-to-day basis. So there has to be a sense of what that glue is, as I say, in the business. So I think it's the single most important thing in that respect. But also, I think culture is really important because that shapes in a business consultancy environment, and we're a business consultancy rather than a technology, really. It shapes how you interact with each other as individuals in the office, how you interact with clients. It shapes the way you work with partners. It says something to people you're trying to recruit. They sense that when they come into the office, how they're dealt with, how they are responded to, how they're treated. And I think in a business consultancy environment, that, if you get it right, can be a real differentiator. And if you turn to perhaps some of the most successful consultants in the world, you know, arguably McKinsey, let's say, McKinsey have a clear culture, a very clear culture. And I'm not putting a value judgment on that, whether it's good or bad, you have a different opinion. But it's a very clear culture, I think, within the McKinsey organization. And that is, I would argue, a really important component of their success. So if you're growing a consultancy business, I think your culture has to be, in my judgment, more important than anything else that you set up as an organization, that you put in place as an organization. So I really like that. And I want to come on to the glue, but I have to ask just because you you made the distinction, Mark. And as you know, on this show, I, I love digging into distinction like that. You, you mentioned there's a distinction in the importance of culture. Well, I won't say importance in how culture manifests and grows business versus technology consultancy. I'm just going to ask, what is that and why is that important? And if I may have picked up on something that isn't important, stop me. So in, in a business consultancy, that may be a little bit of loose shorthand on my part, but in a business consultancy, largely speaking, you're involved in effecting change within an organization rather than changing things, rather than implementing a piece of Oracle or delivering a piece of, uh, of integration. So in effecting change, of course, you write reports and presentations and everything else, but the quality of what you do is very much driven by how good your interactions are with the client on a day-to-day basis. And I would suggest that 
the quality of business consultancy that you deliver is probably 20% IQ and 80% EQ, emotional intelligence, because you can deliver the best quality report you like with fantastic data analysis and wonderful graphs and everything else. But if the client is not connected with you or what you're trying to achieve or what the overall objective is, and if you're not connected with the client in that, then you're not going to help them achieve their outcome. So the culture is manifested through the personal interactions of individual consultants in what they do on a day-to-day basis and how they work with the client team. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it it really does. I I think it's a really good point as well, particularly for our younger listeners where they may be going into consulting off the back of IQ, good degrees and education. And actually, you aren't the first person to highlight that EQ is so important. And you're quite right. I hadn't actually thought of it in the way you've described it. But when you are delivering IT, while your client won't work with you if you are very difficult and don't get on, ultimately, they care that does the widget at the end work? Does the system spit out what they need? But like you say, a lot of change projects are frankly quite intangible. The outcome is the feeling that evokes the change as opposed to the PowerPoint. You know, we've all heard about the 100-page decks that sit on the proverbial shelf. So, no, I I think it's a really good point. And I'll bring us back to the conversation you had started then and and the other question around the glue piece because you, you highlighted how important that was. And as you were on that management team for that journey, how did you keep your pulse on the culture and ensuring it stayed true to its roots but grew with the firm? That's a great question, Nick. That's a great question. By the way, before I get to it, and while I'm thinking of my answer to that, I have to plead guilty to I definitely have produced lots of those 100-page PowerPoint <laughs> presentations that have sat on the shelf and done nothing. So <laughs> we, We've um, all been there, Mark. Yeah, Don't you worry. And, uh, I take no pride in, in saying that. So um, how do you make the, the culture, the values, really embed in the business? So we've all been in organizations where you go in in the reception area, they say our culture is X, Y, and Z, whatever X, Y, and Z is. And they've got the pretty poster and the person on the top of a mountain, you know, reaching for the sky and everything else, which of course you kind of have to have, but that doesn't define the culture of an organization. The culture of the organization is defined by the day-to-day behaviors and actions of the people. So within Hydra, and it's now, what are we, 14 years since Hydra was sold? But I I remember very clearly now the four kind of phrases we had for our culture. It was respect, openness, accountability, and integrity. And that, I'm sure, was probably on a poster somewhere in our reception. But the next level down we had to that was we identified the set of behaviors that we expected that goes with each one of those. And those sets of behaviors were embedded into our appraisal process and into our objective setting process. Furthermore they were also reflected in pay and reward. Uh, and we kind of articulated exactly what that means. So there was there was some genuine bite to it. It wasn't just worthy stuff. And I actually remember that we spent a lot of time thinking about, well, how do we make that reflected in pay and what the mechanisms we put in place? What's the structure and oh, Excel spreadsheet can we put in place? I'll tell you what we actually came to. We actually came to a decision that, ultimately, the, the, the line manager and ultimately the chief executive, me, would make a decision if X or Y individual was not adhering to the values of the business. And I, ultimately me, but the manager would have the discretion to withhold any amount of their bonus they wanted. And people signed up to that. So that says something about the trust in the business. It also says something about how important the organization understood the culture was. Now, did it work perfectly? Of course it didn't, Nick. 
but uh, that was how we tried to make sure it was really embedded into the organization. It's about the behaviors and it was about the expectations and objectives. And, you know, it, it mattered in the pocket as well. I really like that, Mark. I think your point there around actually what's underneath those you know, those headlines. One of my first ever guests, Don Morehouse, always talked about the poster above the photocopier. And I don't think we have photocopiers anymore. But exactly that, you know, like you said, the man or woman reaching for the sky on a mountain. But it is what happens underneath that that brings it to life. I'm probably going way too detailed, but just because I like the way you described actually cutting through the complexity and just what you're feeling, because nine times out of 10, that gut feeling to bring us back to how you joined the business in the first place, that gut feeling of is this right or wrong is usually a good sense. I guess there's an interesting question, and, and I'm no HR expert, but how you make that work then when you are linking that in a discretionary way to people's bonuses, because what a spreadsheet gives you is a a validation, if you like, of, well, you got a seven out of 10, so we can only give you 70%. How did you manage that potential tension of just, oh, I don't like so-and-so, so they get less? I'm saying it in part guessing the answer, but I'd love to know, because I'm sure it's something you had to deal with. Yeah, You're really testing my memory today. Oh, well, Nick, we, can, <laughs> we, can move, we can move forward, as I say. But my, my recollection, and there may be one or two exhedra people listening to this who I'll be very happy if they wanted to correct this, because I may have cut it wrong. But my recollection is that we had a, a, a reward system, a bonus system that was based on 50-50, 50% hard targets, you know, X-utilization or Y sales or whatever it was, and 50% uh, softer type targets, which were about the behaviors that I referred to earlier. And because the behaviors were set out in quite a lot of granularity, you could determine, not perfectly because it's not quite like that, but you could really identify whether someone had or had not met up to their responsibilities. So the one I remember most, for example, a really straightforward one, which most of your listeners will understand, accountability. So what does that mean? One we had on that was uh, we had to fill in timesheets every week and the timesheets had to be in by 12 o'clock on a Monday morning, if I recall correctly. And, you know, in the same way that the business will pay you each month and pay your expenses on time and everything else, that's our accountability to you. Your accountability to the business is get your timesheet in on time. It's a really important part of the overall management information that we gather. And the rule we had was you are allowed to miss that twice, but not three times. And if you missed it three times, then that element of your bonus was, was under threat. And I can't quite remember what we meant by under threat, but it's very clear. People you know, will recall that it was a three strikes and you're out sort of uh, ruling. So if you identify the behaviors with real level of granularity based in real circumstances of things that happen in the business, then that does help to reduce, not eliminate the, I just don't like the color of his socks or I don't, I don't like the color of her, her sort of uh, assessments, which is obviously not a very effective way of making uh, people judgments. Thank you for remembering that for me. And, and I think a really nice example of also some of that detail, how you work that. And like you say, the the hard versus soft, but also the how you bring the soft to life because you do want to minimize that risk, but also make it clear for people to know how to live those values. And maybe to your point, that was quite a while ago. So I'll bring us up to date. And I'm really interested, actually, you work with businesses now, similar size, growing rapidly. Do you give them the same advice you've just talked about for the Hedra story? Or actually, how has that approach evolved and changed for the firms that you work with? Are there some things that you see, I guess, have remained true, but equally what's come in or changed in that approach to make it effective for today's world that you've seen? So sticking with the, the culture aspect in particular, I think if anything, it is more important now than it was even 15 years ago. And certainly the businesses I advise with at the moment, we do absolutely talk pretty much every day about the culture of the organization, what it actually means, 
not just that it's a good thing to have, but what it means and how important it is and how we embed that in the entire activity of the business, you know, from how we recruit people to how we manage their onboarding to how we put in place learning development plans to how we review progress, how we give feedback, and how when people leave the business and move on to their next role, we make that happen in a in a in a supportive and, and a congratulatory way. Uh, so I would actually argue, Nick, that it's always been important. And in any discussion I'm having now with businesses I advise, it's probably more important than I can ever recall. No, it's it's a really good point, Mark, and that, that point around just continually talking about it, understanding what it means. And would you, to the sort of detailed part of that bringing it to life that you described, with importance growing, has the way that the businesses you work with bring it to life changed? Is it still very much that structure you talked about of the, you know, the values with the behaviors underneath and underpinning it? Or is there something different that you're seeing people do now as a result of you know, the changing world that we've lived in over that you know, 15 years and particularly over the last two years? At a general level, I don't think it's any different, but it manifests itself in different ways. So let me give you a very specific example, perhaps. So sadly and wrongly, 15, 20 years ago, mental health at work would not really been talked about. And if it had been talked about, it would not be talked about in an open and healthy way. It would be considered a weakness, let's be frank, by most individuals. Now, the culture, let's say if you had a culture and one of your values was caring for people, respect for people, quite probably, slash possibly, the organization might manifest one aspect of that by saying, and our approach to dealing with uh, mental health challenges is blah, 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 whatever that is. And uh, there could be a whole host of supportive mechanisms that an organization will put in place to, to bring that to life. So I think the way it's manifested is different because of the changing world we're living in, uh, particularly in a COVID environment with hybrid working people who, unfortunately, in the last couple of years have been asked to work at home, maybe with kids running around and homeschooling and in uh, home environments that are not necessarily suited to you know, a very uh, productive environment. And I think many of us have learned a lot from that and have adapted things in uh, in the sets of behaviors that we expect and uh, you know i now see for example a lot of people put as their footer on their emails you know i, I don't work regular hours um, i might be sending you this email late or early in the morning or whatever i don't expect you to reply to it uh, when you receive it it suits me to work irregular hours i recognize it might not suit you and that kind of manifestation of a of a respect for other people's time is i think a really healthy but b is different than it would have been 15 20 years ago it's a really good point. And yeah, I know we were talking just before we started recording about potential changes to consulting with you know, more flexible working and what that brings in terms of inclusivity and, and diversity to our industry. And I think your point there around that respect and just understanding that not everyone works the same ways, the same hours. And you see it, like you say, everything from email footers to I, one for me is actually dress. I think the way we all, I mean, you know, we're sitting here, you're in a shirt, I'm, I'm in a jumper. Two years ago, it would have been suits and ties and I think that's been a, a really actually a strange leveler as well because suddenly almost subtly there was with a suit you know you could tell who was the boss because they had the nicer suit whereas wherever we shot a shirt or a jeans or a t-shirt they kind of all look the same and actually I think that's been quite a leveler as well but to your point it's that respect that understanding that you can be, do great work without wearing a tie I think things like that have been really important as well yeah I, I, I couldn't agree with you more and, and and that's a healthy thing in my opinion very healthy thing Oh, com completely agree. It certainly cost me less in wardrobe. I'll tell you that. Having being six foot six, I always had to get suits extended. So having uh, yeah, being able to wear polo shirts, jumpers. I'm, I'm a big fan of this. And I think one last piece, and I am jumping back on on the culture side, but I, it's just something that I find fascinating because I have had 
previous colleagues of yours from Hedra. So Richard Gould has come on the podcast, John Howard at Channel 3, someone we work with. The, there is a sort of network, if you like, the sort of Hedra Mafia. I'm, I'm sure you have a better name for yourselves. I'm sure you've all talked about it at some point. What, why are we still in touch? Like, What was it about that experience that helped you form such close bonds? And how have you maintained that over that time? Because to your point, 15 years is a long time. What's kept you all together? Yeah, good question, Nick. So I think a couple of things I've already alluded to, but let me perhaps draw them out now if I can. So firstly, we went on a journey together. And uh, whatever journey, literal or metaphorical journey you go on, very often that can bring you together. So if you join a group and you walk up Kilimanjaro or walk up Ben Nevis or something or whatever it is, then you you get a certain bond uh, in that journey. So most of us who were at Hydra went on this journey of a fast growth business. Much of the experience of that was really enjoyable. So that, that, that connects you in a certain way for a long time. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is a culture, which we talked about already. A shared culture, a shared outlook is really important to, you know, those people you mentioned and many, many others. And that, that, that holds you together because the culture lasts, as I said earlier, beyond people coming and going from the business. You can still have that culture in your day-to-day interactions with colleagues and ex-colleagues in a way which is very special. And the third thing, which I touched on very briefly earlier, but if you, one of your judgments in choosing an organization to work in is, I want to work with people I like working with. It's not really a surprise when you leave that business that you keep in touch with them because you like them. And I think that has been a, a big kind of attractor or magnet between that that group of Hydra people staying together. And uh, and you know, I'm 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 very proud and pleased to be and privileged to be part of that. I think a great answer and to your point shows the strength of what you built because I think it's it's very easy to talk about things, but it, the fact you have stayed together shows that that stands the test of time and that that works. So, no, really, really good point. I want to turn, Mark, to another topic that I know you're passionate about and I think is a, is a great learning from your journey and something I, I know you help your sort of firms that you advise with now, and that's, that's brand. And obviously, running a marketing agency for consulting firms, it's a topic I like to talk about. So when I knew it was one that you were interested in, I thought we had to discuss it. And maybe just to start with, it'd be great for our listeners to almost understand why you see brand as so important for consulting firms. So... This is one of the great learning lessons of my of my career, Nick. As I said to you, I was at PA and then for 13 years at KPMG Consulting, one of the you know biggest brands in the professional services business. I then moved to Hydra, which you know at the time very few people had heard of, even within the market that we operated within. And I was very very slow on the uptake. It took me at least 12 months to realise how important brand was when I left KPMG and joined Hydra. I was used to, when I was at KPMG, calling people, asking for meetings, uh, getting in front of partner organizations. And before I'd even open my mouth, they know where I'm from. And KPMG ticks a number of boxes. They think scale, they think competence, capability. They usually think you're an accountant in those days, which I, I, I wasn't. But it ticks a number of boxes. So straight away, you are in a usually a very good place in the eyes of the other person you're sitting opposite or talking to. And it was remarkable how easy it was to get meetings with people you wanted. I, I even recall getting a meeting with a, a minister of state with just one question, one uh, one request uh, when I was at KPMG. Just simply because you were 
from KPMG. Well, I, so ignorant was I, I thought at the time, it's simply because I was Mark Campbell, but... <laughs> I'm sure that was the reason, Mark. <laughs> no, no, of course, it definitely was not. And that was, the, that was the revelation, certainly when I joined Hydra, because clearly I hadn't changed who I was and I really hadn't changed my skill set in leaving KPMG and joining Hydra. But all of a sudden, my calls weren't being returned, my opportunities to get in front of people weren't being taken up. Uh, I, if I did get in front of people or was sitting down talking to clients or potential partners, I'd usually have to spend the first 15 or 20 minutes saying, uh, this is Hydra, this is how you spell it, this is what it means or doesn't mean, you know, we're X turnover, we're Y number of people, these are our clients. And genuinely, 15 or 20 minutes could be spent doing that. And none of that would have to be pretty much none of the time would you have to do that when I was a KPMG. And that's the power of the brand can now, you know, I used to think I could get meetings and sell stuff and whatever because I was Mark Campbell, but I would say very little of Mark Campbell was doing the selling. A huge amount of that was was KPMG and the brand. And Hydra uh, taught me a lot in, in that respect and moving to any small business. And I guess you must might find this a lot yourself in your own organization. The great thing about that is you do actually reveal how good you are or are not. And if you're not that good, you can work on it. And it, it really opened my eyes. But, you know, as I say, to, to my shame, really, it probably took me 12 months to, to learn that lesson. So that is the single biggest thing I understood. And just rolling that forward ever since then, uh, when I'm working with organizations that perhaps don't have a powerful brand in the marketplace, one of the things I say to people who are trying to join from companies that do have a great brand is, do you realize the change you're going to make? That doesn't mean it's a bad thing or doesn't mean you won't be able to cope. But do you understand the implication of joining a business without a brand of any note from a business which has a world-leading brand? And the reality is, of course, very few people properly understand that unless you've actually done it yourself. And I know you've, you've been part of that journey yourself. It's a great point. And that last one, I'll, I'll come back to the how you build brands. But that last point, I think, is really interesting for anyone listening because sadly, and I'm sure you know, firms like this as well. I know so many smaller consulting firms where they have done that. They've hired, you know, the inverted commas rainmaker from a, a PwC, a KPMG, a big, you know, big four, big six firm. And I think your point there of actually have you told them what this looks like? Because it is so different. You know, the world that that you work in, that I work in where they don't see a poster when you come into uh, Heathrow, you know, it's not, or the latest one, and I know you're a sports fan as well, is Accenture have taken to sponsoring the BT Sport. So I see that, you know, I see their brand every rugby game that I watch. But when you're selling in those organizations, it's it's very different. I guess the the other side, and I, this may or may not have been the same with your sort of your experience in Hedra, and it, it's slightly different, but the scale of sale, I think is a really interesting thing. When I speak to partners in those large organizations, it's eight figures, nine figures, 10 figures. Actually, in a lot of smaller organizations, you may grow a client to that, but you, you start at five figures, six figures, you know, seven figures is a sort of ring the bell jackpot. And that's quite a shift in sales mentality as well. And I, I think, I don't know if that formed part of your speech as well. Yeah, no, it, it definitely does. It, it's recognizing what success looks like is different in a smaller, let's say a smaller business or a business with a lesser known brand is is a very different set of criteria from success in a, in a large organization. But the, the flip side of that, and I would say this to anyone that may be thinking of moving from a heavily branded major brand organization to one with a lesser brand the great joy of that is that you can be confident that a lot of that is probably down to you or your team or your competence or your ability or your track record. And look, the, 
the KPMGs and Accenture this world have all of that because of you know many many years and and they do a fantastic job of capitalizing on and doing absolutely the right thing. But the truth is, when you sell an individual piece of work, there's a little bit of you and a lot of the brand. If you're in a smaller organization, there's a lot of you and a little, maybe nothing of the brand. And that can be really, really rewarding because even if it's only a six or a seven figure sale, you can kind of pat yourself very, very strongly on the back knowing that, that you did a, a huge amount of that selling. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point, Mark. Like you've highlighted before, I don't want to keep making you remember things from a, a long time ago. So I'll let you pick where is best to bring this to life. Is You touched on with the Hedra story that you, after that 12 months, realized the branding piece was really important. And so I'm going to infer that you then went on a journey in building the Hedra brand. Now, obviously, you work with a range of firms and advise them, and I assume doing the same. And for anyone listening, almost either, what were the steps you took or what steps do you advise to help someone build a brand, I guess, to the point they need to. And I'll, I'll let you tell us how much of a brand they need for a smaller firm. But what were those steps you took or advise others to take to, to get the brand such that you can get some, you know, get some meetings? I'm now feeling nervous, Nick, for two reasons. Because one, this is not my forte. And secondly, I'm looking at someone whose forte it is. So uh, let, let's, let's try and throw a I'm few things. I'm always here to learn, Mark. So <laughs> please. Let's throw a few things out there and, and, and see whether they make sense to you at least. Look, the first thing I would say, and of course most people realize this, but it is worth emphasizing, brand is not about the colors, uh, the fonts, the logos, the mission statements. I mean, they're a tiny part of it, but it's, it's absolutely not about them. It's about what it is your organization represents. So in terms of building the brand, I would say try and be very clear about what it is you do and what it is you do rather well. Very few organizations do things uniquely well. Some do, but very few in, in professional services do unique, genuinely uniquely well. But try and identify what it is you do rather well or pretty well, let's put it that way. And where it is that you are trying to focus. And the focus is usually either a focus in terms of your capability and or the market or markets within which you operate. They're the two areas of focus. So if you have clarity about what it is you do pretty well, what it is you want to be famous for in terms of your capability and the markets you want to operate within for a startup or a, a near startup brand, I think they're the most important ingredients to have clarity on. And be honest with yourself. It's no good saying, you know, I want to take over the world and operate in 45 countries over the globe if you are currently operating in your shed, you know, and delivering services to two or three people within London or something. So be really honest with yourself about that because only then can you start to put in place the reasonable steps to, to, to grow. And I think the final thing I would say on that, and then I'm going to leave you to answer any parts of the question I haven't answered, is make sure that what it is you're trying to, as, to build as a brand actually resonates with your own people. So, Because if it doesn't resonate with your own people, your own team, you've got no chance of it resonating with potential clients. So your own team can and should be your severest critics or your strongest supporters because then they will be able to live the brand much more effectively when you're in the marketplace on a day-to-day -day basis so there's a few of my thoughts but if i've missed some things out i'm sure you'll tell me no i i think mark that was brilliant if you decide you want another role you know we're, we're actively hiring <laughs> uh, no I, it was not a trick question and, and very much you know i think also there's there's things that have stayed true throughout and i want to come on to some more of your learnings from you know your time in the industry but 
that point around focus on what you are good at. And, and you've actually, it's interesting in all the topics we've talked about, that being honest piece is, has really come out your, you know, why you joined Hydra with cult, and then the culture piece and then that brand piece. I think bringing it to brands, you're spot on. And actually, we talked a lot about the big boys and competing with, or big boys and girls, we should say, you know, competing with them. As we all know, and, and anyone listening knows, there are a lot of buyers who actually, they actively buy against them. And I think very often, and, and I learned this the hard way, trying to launch a estate agency business, which I won't, I won't bore you with now, but I, I went, London is big. If you do everything in London, you'll get lots of customers. You know, it's the old sort of business school, Sam Tam model. But that point you made around knowing who you are being realistic, because if you are a man in a shed, there's real power in that because people like to help, you know, the man or woman in the shed. When speaking of my business, when I, I launched, it was just me. There were clients that worked with us, me, because it was, they were helping a startup, they're helping a new business. And those clients want to do that. They don't want to work with a KPMG. And to your point, it's being honest about what you are. And I think so often consulting firms try and project that they are a KPMG and then you scratch under the surface. And that's where that disconnect, that honesty point, it's not honest. So people get confused. And I think, so no, it's a really good point you raise and, and almost a fundamental that I don't think enough people realize when they're thinking about this for their organization. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I guess the other thing I would say on the, on the small, and you definitely have more experience with this than I do, Nick, but on the, on the small brand, when a, a large organization says to a client, you really matter to us, I'm sure they mean it. But the financial reality is that if the client walks away or doesn't sign the check or doesn't uh, commission them, it isn't that important to their success or failure. If you're a one-person band or a two-person band and you say to your client, you really matter, they do really, really matter. And it could be your only client if you're a startup or one of a very small number of clients. That doesn't mean you will necessarily do a better job, but most small businesses will do everything they possibly can to please their clients in a way that usually goes beyond what a big brand will do. Mark, really good point. And yes, I... It, do I get a gold star, you, Nick? You, you can have a gold... You have two gold stars. How about, how about that? Thank you, sir. You've been doing... And you say I've got more experience. You've been doing this a lot longer than me. And, you know, you you took Hydra a lot further than I've taken anything so far. So, you know, I will defer to you. Maybe just before we go on to learning, just because it's... You might say it's a very short question, but this is something, as a marketing person in consulting, uh, consulting people are cynical folk. And you get this, I get this. But maybe just for anyone listening, and you might just say it's what you've just said, but is there anything you'd say to people when they go, Mark, I don't need a brand, I just need to sell, or Mark, I need to, you know, I need a salesman, or I need a this. Have you had those conversations over the, I don't know, the last two, five, ten years? And what do you say to people who say, do I need this is a bit fluffy? What's the point? I'm not sure I have had this conversation, but if I did, I guess my question to them is, so what are you selling? And they would probably say, this competence and who you're selling it to they would probably say this type of client this industry and i would say whether you've whether you know it or not you've probably got the basis of a brand positioning statement there or the the core elements of a brand uh, so you know you might not like it but that's the reality of what you're doing is is building a brand with a reputation in x y or z and a positioning in a b and c and uh, and that, that's actually where you are you're building a brand I think it's a great point. And, and actually, same to you know, our conversation on culture, isn't it? You, you have one whether you like it or not, and you decide whether you, you shape it or it is shaped by external factors. And I really like that. Like you say, when you explain it in that language, of course it is. You, know, you, you either talk about being the, the leading firm who does systems integration in energy, 
or you work with energy clients, do systems integration, and, and you know that that happens. So now I I think that's a great point, and it, that piece I almost brings us to because we've talked a lot about your career and jumped forward and backwards and forwards and backwards. And there, there's a few questions I guess I was interested in, just more broadly learnings from your time in the industry, and maybe to start with because this was something that made amused me when we first talked. And I you know I, I remember you saying you sort of came into consulting for a few years to fast track, and you know there'll be many listeners to this who are at that end of the career journey. And I'd love to know, you know, you're 30 years later, what kept you in consulting? I guess two things, Nick. So firstly, I kept on enjoying what I was doing, which is usually a good reason to stay somewhere. And secondly, broadly speaking, this doesn't apply to every single person I've worked with, but broadly speaking, I've enjoyed the people I've worked with and been stimulated and challenged and pushed by them. So enjoying the content and enjoying the people you're working with sounds a, a, a pretty good basis to staying where you are. I guess that there's a, a, a third issue is I've kind of never quite been able to address in my head what I would do if I wasn't consulting, which, which may be a completely different conversation. But um, it, it is something which I really have enjoyed and enjoy the people who do it as well. Now, that's not to say every single day of my consulting career has been filled with uh, sweetness and happiness. That would be far, far from the truth. But, you know, over the broad sweep, it, it, it's been a great environment and one that uh, I feel privileged to have you know, had a career in and a career which has helped me understand a lot more about myself, as well as the organisations I work in and for. No, I think a great answer, Margaret. I, I take that point entirely. The sort of, if there's nothing that seems more appealing, why would you go into it? And just because you, you talked about it right at the start around that conversation with your wife around sort of leaving KPMG, is that something that you kept that sort of check? Did you bring in any checkpoints after that? You know, to your point around, I kept enjoying it. Did you become more cognizant of whether you were enjoying it or did that just naturally evolve over the, you know, the time since then and beyond? I think what I realised, there have been natural checkpoints, I think, rather than explicit ones. And I think what I realised, definitely looking back at my KPMG days and then more explicitly, explicitly as I was going through my hundred days and beyond, is that I am someone that responds best to a challenge. And the challenge can be one that is within an organization. And it's usually a challenge over several years, or it can be a challenge that comes from moving organization. But I need to be engaged in something which I feel is maybe just beyond what I'm capable of. And that really pushes me. And that has led to me, I mean, I said right at the very beginning, I've moved around to a few places. I think one of the reasons I've done that, particularly in the latter second half of my career, if I put it that way, is because I've kind of either succeeded or partially succeeded at the challenge I went somewhere for, and then I've been looking for the next one. And very often that has involved me looking to another consulting organization who have a challenge for me, one which is perhaps just at the limit of what I think I'm capable of. No, I, I think that's a great point. And I think it's a trait that I, I meet a lot of consultants who have that same desire to continue pushing, continue challenging themselves. And we, we haven't actually, and sadly, I don't think we'll have time today, but we haven't talked about Hitachi and RGP either. But that point of there was a new challenge growing, going into those businesses. And maybe it's a slight sort of sidestep, but I'm I'm intrigued because we talked about the going from KPMG into Hedra, so big to small. And Hitachi, as I understand it, it's, sort of, it's huge. It's, you know, it's part of, obviously, the, the big Japanese brand, as everyone will know. Just a side point, because you, you talked about there with the challenges, almost what led you to take a challenge back at a, a large organization? And 
again for your sort of you gave the advice to listeners going from big to small did you do you have any advice for those going from small to big so two parts to that question i think what attracted me to going to them was hitachi consulting uh, then and now was much more of a technology uh, business than i've been used to in the past so my challenge there was to get my head around what was involved in growing, leading, developing a technology-oriented business. That was definitely at the limit, if not, well, most of my colleagues might say beyond my level of ability, but it was definitely going to test me. So I was really attracted to that, amongst other things. Uh, so that would be why I took it, I think, the principal reason, Nick. In terms of advice going from small to big, on the assumption you've not been in big before, I would say that don't underestimate the complexity of the organization, whether it's, uh, in my experience, a KPMG or a Hitachi. There are levels of organization, influence, decision-making, governance, risk management, that if you've never worked in a large organization, you struggle to get your head around. It's really, really difficult to understand how it all works and why it's there. I mean, it's there for very, very good reasons. So I'm not criticizing those things, but it's very difficult to understand what that is if you've never experienced it. On the other hand, all of those things that you might have been used to doing in a small organization, you usually find in a bigger one, they're done with, done by someone else. So if you've been a leader in a small business, you've probably been dealing with HR issues and finance issues and been speaking to the auditors and been involved in implementing your new uh, Microsoft 365 implementation, whatever it is. If you go into a big business as a frontline consultant, let's say, that just happens. One day you walk in, you switch your PC on, and the uh, the PC upgrade refresh goes through. And it takes five minutes, you go and get a cup of tea, you come back to your desk and it's done. And the HR issues are dealt with by the HR department. And many people would find that a massive kind of relief if you've been used to dealing with, dealing with some of those things in a small business. So uh, I think that there are obviously pluses and minuses to all of that. Depends where you're coming from. But the complexity is huge. But the power of these big businesses to do a lot of things, usually professionally, that you might have had to meddle around with in a smaller business is, is really welcoming to many people. I think it's a really balanced view there, Mark. So obviously, it can be quite easy to look at that and say, oh, yeah, it's complexity and it's bureaucracy. But but you are quite right. You know, and again, as a sort of very small business owner, but I'm sure it doesn't change. You are head of IT, head of you know, updating the laptops. And I must say, as someone who used to be a consultant, laptops and IT are the bane of my life. I'd like to say it's, it's different, but I think you're right. That kind of, you have a lot of this done for you, and that is a real benefit. And I don't know if it relates, but it's something that I've marked from our sort of conversation ahead of this. And so it might be related to that. It might be related to how the industry's changed. So I, I, I wanted to ask you and get your take. Cause you said senior leaders now know that they, they don't have to know everything. And I suspect that isn't in relation to updating laptops, but I'd love to understand for our listeners what you meant by that and, and how that manifests in, in consulting leaders that, that you know and work with today. So let me just tweak a little bit the premise of that i would say the best senior leaders realize they don't need to know everything so i guess when i first joined consultancy and this may have been more so in a traditional accounting based consultancy as i was in the assumption was you evolved through the grade structure and eventually became a partner and the partner knew everything and he or she was the font of all knowledge and even if they weren't the font of all knowledge either they pretended they were or you pretended they were or both None of which is healthy, of course. 
And in some respects, some of them were the font of a lot of knowledge. I mean, I, I don't want to do a disservice to you know very, very capable partners. The reality, I think, is that the businesses that we work in now, the businesses we work for, and the wider society that we all work within are much more complex now than they were. Uh, and people can fill in the gaps of that themselves. I don't need me to kind of rehearse the complexities of that, but everything from the way communication happens to the use of laptops to the internet and, and expectations of millennials, all kinds of things have changed massively and are complicated. And what is more, the rate of change, I would argue, is increasing rapidly. So even if it were once true that senior leaders knew everything, it definitely cannot be the case now, I would say. And in my experience, the very best senior leaders understand that they know very little. Their real skill is in firstly understanding the limits of their own knowledge and having the wisdom and humility to know the right questions to ask of the right people. And if you are constantly asking questions, whether you're a senior leader or a very junior person, if you're constantly asking the right questions together, you can get usually to a better place than any individual can on their own. I think that's what I mean by that kind of phrasing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, ma it makes a lot of sense. And I think talks to a lot of the points that you know, we've brought out today around how the world has changed and that, you know, I guess the, the way the old macho culture is no more. And like you said, actually things like mental health and just not having to be that hero alpha male type personality to succeed. I think it's, it's one of the reasons, frankly, I do this podcast is I want to bring guests together to show the diversity of people, thought, approach that can succeed in consulting clue is in the name for climbing consulting and i guess talks to also your hedra journey with the founders where they inferred they knew the limit of their knowledge and that was taking the business to where they had the question bit intrigues me not because i think it's wrong i think it's right but there's a you mentioned i know we joked before this around when you were 30 you thought you knew it all and, and i must say Matt, when i was well I'll, I'll reflect when i'm a bit older because i'm only 33 now but when i was 25 i certainly thought i knew it all and it might just be what you've just said there but for any of our younger listeners how can they check themselves in terms of that point and actually go on the journey of self-awareness to find out how much they really know well, it may have just been me, Nick. It, might, it was me as well. It may have just been you and I. So, <laughs> but let's think, let's stick to what we know. Look, I, I definitely, when I was thirty or so years of age, I was uh, definitely arrogant and definitely thought I knew almost everything. And that that I didn't know probably wasn't worth knowing. And how wrong I was. I think that the very best leaders realise that. They, don't, as I said earlier, they don't know a huge amount and they are best informing themselves by asking questions. What I guess, I, 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 and let me just, a little aside if I may, one really good example that happened only yesterday to me. So I was chairing a, a board meeting of one of the businesses I work with. And you know, I chaired run meetings for pretty much all of my career, definitely for at least 30 years. And you know, in, in, the arrogance doesn't go away. I think I'm okay at it, to be honest. But at the end of the Sounds meeting, humble, right? okay. <laughs> but at the end of the meeting yesterday, uh, and I've probably have definitely have run hundreds and probably thousands of meetings. I had a meeting yesterday with a group of colleagues who taught me things about how to run a meeting. And at the end of the meeting, I, I thanked them because I was a better a better chair at the end of that meeting. And I felt really privileged to be part of that meeting and to have, uh, to have learned. And I realized that the next time I hope go into a meeting, hopefully if my 
if my memory serves me well, I can I can recall some of those lessons I learned and be better as a result of that. So to try and get back to your question a little bit, humility, which I'm not sure I've got a lot of right now. I definitely didn't have 30 years ago. But just be ready to look at all of those around you. You can probably learn lessons, sometimes good and sometimes bad lessons, from pretty much everyone you work with. Just open your eyes, watch, observe, process. I would, for me, argue also write it down, but I know writing down doesn't necessarily work for everyone because in 10 days' time and maybe 10 years' time, you won't necessarily remember what you spot. So that's why I find writing down really helpful. But just have the humility to realize that there are many brains around the table and you can probably learn from some, if not all of them. I think a great anecdote. And actually, I'd add just hearing your you know, your story there from the other day, there's also a confidence in that of, yeah, it's very easy when you are in the, the head role, whatever that is, to feel like you have to project, you know, everything. And, and like you've said, and how the world I think has changed, it's perfectly accepted to say, I don't know, you know, to your answer with your conversation about the the leaders, see, you know, the best senior leaders, they say, I don't actually know everything, but you're not expected to, you know, if no one can know everything. And, and I think that's where within that humility, that confidence to say, yeah, I'm learning here as well, because the best senior leaders, I think, like you say, are always learning because the world is always changing and you you have to keep learning to remain relevant. That, I guess, is, is the nature of consulting, isn't it? Absolutely right. And and it's not just in consulting, you know, uh, uh, probably in, in, in most industries that as a leader, you, I think, need to show vulnerability. And you know what, if, if you've got to a certain status within an organization, whether that's consulting or outside consulting, you probably are pretty good at what you do. And you can be vulnerable reasonably easily, I would argue. Now, some people don't find it easy, but you can probably demonstrate your vulnerability knowing that you're still paid quite a lot of money, you are still got a lot of responsibility, probably for good reason, so you can afford to be vulnerable. But if you can be vulnerable as, as a leader, then that can set a great example to the rest of the business. I think that is a probably a great place to to draw the the main discussion to a close because it is fantastic you know, advice about that vulnerability point and you get what you reflect I guess and if you show that others will bring it back to you so I think a really good point and you will know what's coming here you've listened to a few of these and so we're going to move to our, our wrap up questions now and as you know I ask the same questions of everyone and the first one is is about books I mean sometimes I broaden it out so it could be podcasts it could be YouTube's I've had some guests who that's the go to they don't read books but I'll let you answer it how you choose and and so I'll, I'll ask as i normally do and you can take it where you want which is you know over your career or you know, in the last two years whatever is most relevant what's the book or books you found yourself reading or gifting to other people most and, and why so i am a big book reader and I'm, I'm listening to podcasts not not only your own but others as well but i'm a big book reader so i'm gonna indulge myself a little if, if, if you'll bear with me so i'm gonna I, I have thought about this i'm gonna give you five okay so i'm gonna give you two books that have changed me and really genuinely changed my life. So the first one I read a couple of years ago, and it's called, it's by a guy called Matthew Walker, and it's called Why We Sleep. And I'm recommending this to consultants because it is about the importance of sleep and the importance of looking after your body. And I certainly know that as a more junior consultant, and even arguably now, but definitely as a more junior consultant, I didn't do enough of that. And Why We Sleep is written by the world's leading sleep scientist, Matthew Walker. And I really recommend reading that because it's about how important sleep is and how important it is to look after yourself. 
Uh, and that changed my life. I now completely have a, a completely different regime about going to bed and waking oh, up. Oh, really? And so you, you actually changed, like, literally, not yeah. metaphorically, literally yeah. changed how you so, um, sleep. For, for the maybe two people outside my family that are interested in this uh, listening, you know, typically I now I'm in bed by nine thirty at night, do a little bit of reading, lights out, latest ten o'clock. Now, not. That doesn't happen every single night if there's a dinner on or a function or a meeting, you know. But I would say during the week, four nights out of five, that, that's that's my working habit. And I do my best to get my eight hours. Uh, so Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, uh, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. The second one that changed my life was a very, very old one now that you may have heard of and definitely some of your readers will called Who Moved My Cheese? Um, and it's, it's a book you can probably read in, in an hour. And I've read it several times over the years. And... It was a book that helped knock away a little bit of my arrogance, I think. And I, I liken myself, I'll try not to spoil it too much for those who haven't read it, but I liken myself to to the uh, the mouse who didn't realise the cheese had moved. I'll put it that way and leave the readers who haven't read it to go and find out for themselves what that means. Uh, I, I felt I would come back every day and the cheese would still be there and and, and it wasn't. So that really opened my eyes in lots of ways. So they're my, they're my two that changed me. Amazing. Well, and I have read Who Moved My Cheese. And like you say, I, I won't spoil it for people, but it does very nicely describe, I think, the, the journey you talked about earlier. So definitely worth a read. And it is sort of, I think it's on my shelf at home. It's kind of hard, barely a centimetre thick. So yeah, an hour's, an hour's read on a Friday evening instead of Netflix is exactly what someone should De- do. Definitely, definitely. So uh, we talked quite a bit today about learning, and I'm going to just give you two books about learning. So the first one is a very famous one, and many, many people would have read it, which is um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, probably the world's leading kind of expert in how humans process the world around them. And for anyone that wants to understand how humans make sense of the world that's around them and how they rationalize it and put it into categories and make sense of everything they come across in a day-to-day basis and probably don't do that very well, that is a fantastic book. Absolutely fantastic. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. And, and the second one about learning is one which is probably more appropriate to people, let me say, of a certain age, Nick, which I'm definitely in this category. It's called, uh, it's, I read it in the last year or two, it's called uh, Beginners. It's the power of lifelong learning by someone called Tim or Tom, Tom Vanderbilt. And basically, it talks about the value of anyone, particularly those of middle age, learning a new skill in life. And how important, whatever that skill is, if it's learning how to sing or as I'm doing right now, learning how to swim, it's the importance of that in terms of your mental well-being, which we talked about today, in terms of the process of acquiring a skill, the discipline required, how important it is to be not very good at it and understand how that is. And, you know, there's a great phrase in there that he talks about the importance of failing. And, you know, you've got a a, a young baby, Nick. How old's your, your baby? Josh is now, gosh. Coming up to five months. Okay. So when Josh starts to walk, the average number of times he'll fall over when he starts to walk in an hour is 17 times. He gets up and he tries again. He fails. He gets up. He tries again. And the reason he will, I'm sure he will learn to walk really, really quickly is because he keeps on trying. And every time he falls over, he doesn't let that set him back. He'll get up and try again. He might scraze his knee or bang his face and have a little whinge, but he'll get up and try again. And Beginners, the book I've mentioned earlier, is just a great insight into how powerful that process is as you get even later in life than than Joshua is. So uh, I really recommend that. And I can't recommend books, Nick, without my final one, which, as I said, this little bit is to indulge me, which is a sports book. And I have to put a sports book in here somewhere. But it, it is directly relevant to management. And it's one I quote a lot. It's by 
a coach of American football. It's a sports management book, I guess. And it's called The Score Takes Care of Itself. And it's by a guy called Bill Walsh, who I think is dead now. He coached the San Francisco 49ers in American football. And the book basically does what you'd imagine the title says it does. It's don't worry about the result on the Sunday or the Monday night football or whatever it is. Focus on the culture you're trying to build. Focus on the training. Focus on how you're trying to get the most out of your team. It is couched in the context of American football, but you could apply it to management. And the results will follow. Whatever you do on the training ground, whatever you do in the office, whatever you do in building the culture, whether it's good or bad, when you get onto the playing pitch, when you get into the presentation for the big client uh, opportunity that you're trying to achieve, if you do all the other things right, the result will follow in overall terms. I think some great recommendations. And I think that last one, like you say, it's you know, do do those basics right. I mean, it's one of, you know, I try to avoid talking about myself or, or create engage on this show, but one of our, our values is, is exactly do those basics right. Because if, if you do the foundations, the rest builds and the other books, uh, you know, really interesting, the beginners one, and actually funnily enough, reminds me a little bit of a recommendation. So Richard Gould's recommendation was uh, a book called The Hundred Year Life which different focus but similar premise around that you have a long life and you should be learning and mark if we if we had longer i, I always try not to open these questions up so i would ask you all about the swimming but maybe that's one for for later on or around two because i you know i think your point is really powerful if we're going to live a hundred year life you've got a, a lot more to live and why wouldn't you learn a new skill learn a new hobby and it links back to that who moved my cheese you know you can't stay still whether that's in work or in your personal life so yeah after this i'll ask you all about the swimming and our last question for today and i'm I'll be honest, I'm testing out changing this just a little, but you, you can sort of take it as you want. So there's three people in front of you. And for yourself, that's someone who's just entering consulting. I normally at the end talk about someone who's just made it to partner. But I think given our journey and our story, I'd be fascinated about them, but also someone who's actually leading a business. And so you've got those three people in front of you. What one piece of advice would you give to each? I think I'm probably going to pick up some of the themes we've, we've, we've talked about. So it might not be a surprise to your listeners. So for the junior... I would say find some mentors, look around, people you can learn from and take your time and be very thoughtful and considered about learning the lessons. Don't be a 22-year-old or a 25-year-old Mark Campbell and think you know it all because you definitely don't. If you're in a consulting organization, you're hugely privileged. You've got such a rich learning environment of massively capable people around you. Suck it up, suck it up, ask questions and in my experience, most people will be very happy to give you time and help you and answer your questions. So that's that's my advice to the junior, let's say. Uh, the second one was a partner, is that right? I think, yeah, if we go to so someone who's, well, you just approaching or just made partner, so that sort of early leadership position, if you like. Yeah. I'm going to give two bits of advice if I can. Please. The first bit is you can't do everything, okay? So when I made partner, I suddenly thought, well, I'm going to just do more and more work and, and, and read everything and read it twice, and and you can't. Uh, so most organizations are like a black hole. The more you give, the more they'll suck in. So you just realize that no matter how senior you are, you can't do everything. But the second thing, and this is more important than the first thing, I would encourage people who just made pond to kind of sit back and reflect and say, who are you now going to help to get to the level you're at or to get up the, the tree, whatever, whatever the tree is or the ladder, and how are you going to help them? Who are you going to help and how are you going to help them? That is your responsibility. And what are you going to do about it? And then the final person, someone who could have been or could be in your your role at Hedra now, you know, heading heading a business, sort of how does that change? And you might say it's the same advice as you gave to the partner, but what would you say to those people? When you're the head of a business, there are so many things you could get involved in. And 
Uh, I've mentioned earlier on in the podcast that uh, probably the, the best mentor I've had in my career was Linton Barker when I was at Hydra. And uh, Linton gave me a piece of advice for us. Every time something comes onto your desk, think of who you're going to pass it to. Think of who you're going to hand it off to. Now, this is really for people who are in a larger organization. So let me just kind of uh, tweak that a little bit. What I would say to the head of a business is write down, think about it, but write down the two priorities you have. And then every day, just be asking yourself, what am I going to be doing today to drive those two priorities? Now, you can't focus all of the time every day on those two priorities. But if you get to a Friday evening and you've done nothing or very little, you've probably not spent your time wisely. And your most precious commodity as the leader of that business is your time and what you do with it. And if you're not spending time on the two biggest priorities, then either they're not the right priorities or you're not spending your time wisely. So that's what I would say. I love that bit of advice. And I your point about the black hole, I think, is such a powerful metaphor. And actually, again, I'm, I try not to open these up, Mark, but back to that culture and mental health. I think so often we, as consultants, we can fall into the trap of doing more is is better and actually become bitter that the organization is letting us. Whereas to your point, actually going the other way and, and doing the right amount, delivering value, helping your colleagues, your clients, but taking that ownership and accountability that you decide how much you give beyond that certain point, you know, beyond what you need to, because I'm sure, you know, I, I found myself in this circumstance when I was consulting, you know, sometimes you work till 10 at night because you feel you should, and no one's going to tell you not to, but that's kind of incumbent on you to know you shouldn't as well. I think a really nice quote. I can, you'll find that on our LinkedIn shortly, I'm sure. <laughs> well, just if I, if I might just indulge Please. that a little bit further, I think it is worth it because it is so important and just, Perhaps I'm picking or going back to something we touched on earlier. I reflect now in terms of people, consultants working in business, I think it's really, really important to have happy people. It's important for them as individuals, and that means it's important for wider society and their families. So regardless of the business value, but it's important for them to be happy. It's important for the business because if they're happy, they're probably producing more, giving you that extra 5%, uh, going the extra mile when they need to, and being a better kind of colleague in the office or a, a colleague in the client environment. And as part of that, they're probably a, an ambassador or a champion for your culture as well. So, I mean, I, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to create an environment where you have happy people. Now, that doesn't mean you can have happy people every day of the week, every minute of the day. But if, broadly speaking, you can create an environment where people are happy, then that feels like a, a pretty good thing for the individual, the business and wider society. And I think that would be, you know, that, that would be a great ambition. Completely agree, Mark. And I think a really nice place for us to to end today. So thank you so much. It's been great catching up and actually digging into all the things that we haven't had time to talk about. And yeah, as we've we've joked about before and I have with others, you sort of COVID has meant meetings become very practical. You have an hour, you talk business, you go on to your next one. And actually, it's really nice to sit down, talk to you about all of these elements, you know, the culture, the brand piece and yeah, the happiness side as well. We will talk about swimming after today. And the last thing to ask for anyone who's listened to this, wants to find out more about yourself, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? I guess the best place is LinkedIn. I mean, I'm reasonably active on that and certainly checking. So if anyone wants to uh, ping me on LinkedIn, I'll be delighted to get back to them and happy to pick up any of the elements we talked about today or indeed anything else for that matter. And Nick, thank you for your time today. I've really enjoyed our discussion. Amazing. Well, thank you as well, Mark, and enjoy the rest of your week. You too. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm.